This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. Today is another skills episode. We are going to be diving into the all-important question of how do we assess symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorder? Yes, we are. You are going to hear us talk about the various types of assessments that you can use when you're assessing for OCD, and we're going to explore how to determine if something is egodystonic, as well as what does that even mean? Let's get started. Today, as you would have heard, we're going to be talking about assessment and assessing for OCD. And one of the first questions that we want to explore is, What is actually one of the first things that we even do when assessing for OCD symptoms? I don't know what it's like overseas, but when we get referrals, it usually says anxiety and depression. Thank you for management. Okay, that's lovely. (laughs) (laughs) And so a lot of the time when we're meeting a client for the first time, we're going in completely blind. But I also think that that is quite beautiful, really, because It allows you to actually be openly curious with your client to get to know their story, to give them a chance to explain what they're experiencing. And when we go in with an open mind, because we don't have this preconceived idea of if we see a diagnosis on a piece of paper, but we start to bring in our own assumptions and our own judgment and our own interpretation of what might be going on, which then means that we can actually miss a lot of the things that our client is even saying to us. So we're not listening anymore. I know a lot of new grads in particular get frustrated when there's not a lot of detail on the referral. I absolutely felt that way myself when I first left uni because we want to feel prepared and we want to feel like we're doing a good job and we're going to do the right thing. But ultimately, I think you get used to that and you're like, actually, no, this is going to make me sit and listen to what my client is going to tell me. And it's those sorts of moments that we really need to keep paying attention to, especially when we first start working with a client. What are your thoughts about that? Absolutely right. That notion of confirmation that if we have too much of a structure going into our assessments, we lose opportunities for creativity and for thinking outside the box. Because I think that one of the key components to assessment is not just what you're ruling in, but what you're ruling out. Really thinking through your differentials and thinking, well, it is this because, and it's not this because. And differentials are ruling things out is as essential as ruling things in. Assessment doesn't happen in one session. It doesn't happen in your first session. And what you discover and what you discern and what you might formulate or diagnose in that first session is not where it ends, is that thinking together, formulating and diagnosing can happen over many. You can be working with someone for a really long time and then they can reveal an aspect of their experience that you didn't know about or that they weren't aware of. And that's when you diagnose OCD or something else. It's a very fluid process. And oftentimes I think Clients live with symptoms that they think is just like how life has to be and they're not aware that actually it's a part of a disorder or there's shame and they don't want to reveal it to you and it takes time and rapport and trust for them to say, actually, there's this other thing going on for me that I've been too scared to tell you. 
And so I think this notion of it's great to be prepared, but we do actually have to be, we just have to be on a journey with our clients and just always be open and curious and thoughtful and have the idea of formulation and diagnosis as not being the end goal. To have what we call a working formulation. Yes, I love that phrase. Yeah, that is constantly evolving as your relationship with your client evolves because a lot of the time people are so full of shame that even just saying things out loud is really, really challenging. And so being able to be privileged enough to work with a client to build trust and rapport so that they feel comfortable to share all their shameful, guilt-inducing, embarrassing, whatever else it might be, painful experiences can take time. It's not just, okay, session one done. I've done my assessment. This is my diagnosis. This is what we do for treatment. I mean, they're important things, but at the same time, it has to be an ongoing process. Otherwise we miss therapeutic opportunities for change. And clients will intuit your lack of curiosity or openness as well. And they'll see you as a closed door or like that job's done and that they'll stop bringing things to you if they feel like you're not open and curious about what their ongoing experience is. Absolutely. Clients are a very good judge of that. Don't get us wrong. Structure is important. It's about, and I guess this is the art to therapy that we develop over years in a sense of holding all of that in our minds to know how to ask questions and which questions to ask and making it conversational to keep building that rapport rather than you going through a checklist. It's not what we're doing, it's how we're doing it that makes a huge difference. Yeah, that's exactly right. You can be using a checklist in session and still be warm and connected. You can allow your client to go off book, so to speak. It might make it difficult for you because you've got to flick from page one of your assessment to page seven and then back to page three and then <laughs> page nine and, yep. and go back and forth. That's a very long mm. assessment document. <laughs> but you go with the client as they're telling the story rather than needing to structure it too much, I think. Yeah. Allow your client to lead you rather than feeling like you have to lead your client, which can be tricky. When you have a client who is like, I don't know. <laughs> I think that's left for supervision yeah. rather than a podcast episode. <laughs> but look, all good assessments, really. I mean, whether you're doing a structured or unstructured format, they all start with the same thing. Tell us why you're coming to see us. Tell us what's going on. And then I think OCD assessment is like any other assessment where you are just curious about what it is that they're telling you. And you're listening for certain key things. You're listening for the idea of the intrusive thought, but not as we've talked about before, everyone gets intrusive thoughts, but we're talking about intrusive thoughts that have an intensity and frequency that is really distressing to the client where they are feeling like their thoughts are out of control. They can't disengage from them. The thoughts are frightening or they're experiencing shame and guilt and they're having them. They're experiencing lots of worry beliefs. So they are evaluating the thoughts that they're having and what that means about them as a person or what the impact or consequences of thinking such things might be. Really listening to how they're telling the story, what their symptoms are, what their experience of having the symptoms is. So clients will often say, look, I've just been feeling really anxious. I can't stop thinking. I'm really preoccupied. I'm so worried about bad things happening. I also find that often it's easier for them to tell a story about the things that they do rather than just the things that they're thinking. So they'll often start with, I just can't stop washing my hands or I just don't feel right or I'm just not coping at work. 
life just feels really difficult because there are all these things that I just feel like I have to do. And that's when you can start really sort of deep diving into tell me more. What are you doing? Tell us more about that. What are the thoughts that behind those behaviors? So asking questions like when you feel the urge to wash your hands or when you feel like you can't stop, what are some of the thoughts that are coming in? What is your mind telling you in that moment? And sometimes clients are very aware of what those thoughts are and sometimes clients aren't aware. And oftentimes clients who aren't aware anymore is because they've been doing their behavior so often that they're on autopilot, that they're just going from trigger to compulsion and all the steps in between that we talked about in our previous skills episode, in case you missed it, it's skills episode one, if you want to check it out later, all the steps in between in terms of worry, beliefs, distress, and recognizing what those intrusive thoughts are, then those thoughts are not missed, but the awareness isn't there as much because they're on autopilot. So oftentimes when clients say, well, I'm not really sure, something that I often ask is, well, when you first started engaging in this behavior, what were some of the thoughts that drove it? So they can often kind of think back to when it first started and go, well, when I first started, this is what I was worried about. But honestly, I don't even know why I'm doing it anymore. I'm just doing it because it just feels like that's what I have to do. And that's the power of habit. That's the power of our brain just being so used to familiarity that it's just doing what it knows what to do, what feels familiar. So it's useful kind of pulling things apart in that regard too, when we're exploring that, what we call functional impact. So what Tori was talking about is how is this person's experience impacting their level of functioning, as well as how much distress are they experiencing? So how intense is that distress? And these are the things that really make OCD what we call a disorder, if we think about it from the DSM-5 And thinking about what you were saying before about the compulsions and how you are thinking about what's the thought behind it, another question I really like to ask is, if something prevented you from doing that behavior, if you couldn't do it, what would that be like? Because I think that's a really good question to help differentiate OCD from behaviors that serve an alternative purpose. A lot of people will say, look, I could stop. Yeah, I'm washing my hands a lot. I feel quite anxious, but look, I could stop. I could just walk away. And other people say, I couldn't stop my distress would go up. I'd be worried all day. I'd go back to my desk at work and I would not get any work done. I probably would be worried at sleep. And then I'd probably have to overcompensate later that night by doing extra washing to compensate for the washing that I didn't do earlier. And I think that that is a really great way of doing some of that differentiating, which is really important in an assessment. And it also will tell you a little bit about if not OCD, then what? Because it could be that there's behavior that is a repetitive behavior attached to an autism spectrum disorder, in which case it's like, well, there's no worry behind it. I really enjoy doing it. It makes me feel quite good, brings order to my day. I probably wouldn't like it if I couldn't do it, but it feels quite good to me. Yeah. I don't really want to stop this. This is something that actually makes me feel good. So I'm trying to explore what the motivation behind the behavior is, what's behind it, what the experience would be like if you couldn't do it will really help you think about what this behavior represents and whether it's an obsessive compulsive disorder or whether it's something else. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a very important one to consider. Yeah. So in terms of when we think diagnostically, there are loads of things we need to consider as described in the DSM. But if we were to consider all of those things, aside from looking at differentials, which honestly, the list of differentials for OCD, as in when we talk about differentials for those that are unfamiliar, we're thinking about, can this be better explained by another condition? That's basically what it means. Then we want to think about 
like the list for OCD is so long. It's probably one of the longer ones. And that's because there's so much overlap with so many other conditions. Honestly, each one of those differentials are probably an episode on its own, which we will get to and cover down the track. Aside from that, the three main things we need to be looking for when we're assessing is, is this person reporting an experience of obsessions? So are they experiencing recurrent, unwanted, intrusive thoughts? When they experience those thoughts and they're experiencing distress, are they then following that with a behavior? Are they then, so it's what are they thinking, but then what are they doing? So the doing part is the compulsion. Are there compulsions present? In this though, we include mental compulsions as well. So in a sense of it's not just observable behaviors that you might see someone do, wash their hands, overtly seek reassurance, check the door, avoid knives or do something else that might engage in a repetitive behavior. Is this then followed through with a mental compulsion? Are they thought blocking? Are they counting in their head? Are they saying a phrase to neutralize? Are they singing? Are they trying to avoid the thought in some other way? How are they trying to reduce that distress, whether it's through an observable behavior or an internal compulsion, or i.e. a mental compulsion, that's allowing them to regulate and neutralize that experience so that either the feared consequence doesn't happen or the feeling is corrected. Like a lot of people will say, I don't think anything bad's going to happen, but it just doesn't make me feel right. So that not quite right feeling. So whatever it is that the person feels like they need to do either internally or externally. So we want to make sure that we've got obsessions present, compulsions present, whether it's observable or hidden. But then as we've been talking about, and as Tori's been highlighting, is we want to think about, is there functional impairment? So how is this impacting the person at school if they go to school or uni or work? If they're a working person, if they're an older person that's going to work, how is it impacting their relationships? How is it impacting them in terms of intimate relationships or friendships or work relationships? How is it impacting their daily functioning? What's their self-care and hygiene like? What's their ability to just get through day-to-day basic tasks like? So we need to think about all of those things when we think about functional impact. The third thing is how much distress is this client experiencing? How dysregulated is this client when they have this experience? So those are the three main things that we want to look at. Obsessions and compulsions is one, functional impact, and then level of distress when we're diagnosing OCD. And the first step, as we talked about, is listening to our clients and going through that semi-structured clinical interview, and then backing that up with some nice psychometric tools that you can use to further fill in the meat, if that makes sense, of the information that you're gathering with your client. So let's chat about some of those psychometrics. Look, I really like using psychometrics. I think I use them in different ways at different times. I think that psychometrics can be great to support the assessment process, but psychometrics can also be really useful clinical tools for informing your therapy. I know I don't use it so much anymore unless I've got someone where we've got lots of differentials and I want something a bit more structured to help us sort of work through what all the differentials might be. But I use the SCID a lot when I was an early career psychologist. So the structured clinical interview for the DSM-5, and that is the clinician version. I like it because it's a map. It gives you the questions to ask your client. You've got yes, no answers. There's lots of prompts throughout the structured interview that allows you to move through each of the diagnoses with your client and rule them in and rule them out. And that is just a beautiful format. And the OCD section is really good. 
It's got lots of prompts if you're just really not sure. And then it's a great tool to then be able to compare OCD to things like generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety, so that you can sort of put them side by side and tease it apart. I think that that's just a great non-OCD specific psychometric that you can use. But in the sort of the more OCD specific field, I love the Y box. So the Yale Brown Obsessive Compulsive Scale. I love that as an assessment tool. I love using that in the first few sessions with my clients. And then with young people, I use the children's Y box. And I love it because it's free to access online. We love a freebie. (laughs) So it's really accessible. (laughs) Yeah, It's a really reliable assessment tool. But I like it because especially in those early stages of an assessment when it might be hard for them to articulate what all of the symptoms are. The prompts are really good to help them say, yeah, I do that. Yes, I do that. Yes. Oh, yeah. I think it's a really great tool. And then, of course, it's got the severity rating scale that goes along with it that you don't have to do. But sometimes I think the severity rating scale, it's good for tracking treatment over time, for seeing whether there are any changes, but also actually think it's quite a good engagement tool. It's a great way for clients to have a look at the impact of OCD on their life, particularly those who might be a bit ambivalent about treatment to really have a look at just how many hours a day they're spending, engage with their obsessions, engage with their compulsions and the impact that's having on their life. People are surprised by just how impactful it is. The alternative is it's a great communication tool for helping them communicate the distress that they're experiencing for them to say, yes, it's so validating. I'm this score. I'm in the extreme range. That makes sense. It's so great to be understood at last, just how impairing this is. Yeah, same. And I find it really, really helpful for when clients are particularly more inclined to intellectualize what they're going through, to think about it and to see the numbers and to help them keep track of what's going on. A lot of the time clients find it a really useful way to go, okay, what I'm doing is working there. It makes it tangible, especially when you use it to track change. And can be motivating for them to keep going because as we know, like when you're going through OCD treatment, it is so harrowing at times and so distressing that sometimes it feels like, am I even getting better? Like what is going on here? And so I think for them to stop and reflect and to track and to see the numbers sometimes can be a really nice way of going, actually, yeah, I am. Wow. Okay. Look at how far I've come. A mentor of mine, Dr. Scott Blair West often talks about a backwards mountain climber and he talks about making sure you check in with your clients and encourage them to look at how far they've come rather than looking to see how far they've got to go can be a really powerful way. And so using psychometrics can be a really helpful way to do that, especially if your clients are more inclined to be more black and white in their thinking. And often they are when we're dealing with people with OCD and that can be helpful too. Agreed. Other tools? There's the Dimensional Obsessive Compulsive Scale by Jonathan Abramovich, which is a really good one as well. It's similar to the Y box. It's quite structured. What's really nice about that is that it's dimensional so that it's exploring symptoms within different OCD subtypes. So that's really useful to help clients break down their experiences with you, which can then be a really useful therapeutic tool. So that's a really good one. It really is. There's also the Florida Obsessive Compulsive Inventory. Which is not one I've used. No, I haven't used that one either. It's a self-report scale and it assesses the presence of symptoms and associated severity on more of a unitary scale. So it's kind of all together and looks more checklist-like in terms of what are the symptoms that are present and what's the severity here as well. It's got pretty strong psychometric properties, which is good. We have 
the latent obsessive obsessional inventory, which looks at the presence of common obsessive compulsive symptoms. It's also self-report. It's widely used in different languages as well. So I think if you're dealing with different cultural populations, that one would be a good one to use. There's also the Padua Inventory Revised, which is also self-report, and it assesses the degree of disturbance linked to common obsessive compulsive symptoms. We also have the National Institute of Mental Health Global Obsessive Compulsive Rating Scale. That's a mouthful. The NIMHGOCS. It's a clinician rating scale where it's got one item rating of obsessive compulsive symptom severity on a 1 to 15 scale. It's fairly simple and has pretty adequate psychometric properties. So I think if you're looking for something in inverted commas, quick and dirty, (laughs) (laughs) especially if you're in like a hospital setting or something like that, and you just want to kind of go through something really quick to go. A nice screener tool, give you a bit of direction. Yeah. I'm noticing some flags, what's going on here. That one's probably a good one to use. And then we have the Vancouver Obsessional Compulsive Inventory which is also self-report and it assesses for severity of obsessive compulsive symptoms across varied domains. As you're starting to notice, a lot of these psychometrics do similar sorts of things and they all have pretty good psychometric properties. So our recommendation would be to check them out. There's so many others and use what feels comfortable for you. The only other one that I'd probably add would be Jonathan Grayson's Obsessive Concerns Checklist, which is a self-report scale. It's in his book, Freedom from OCD, which is an amazing book. If you've not heard of it before, it's outstanding. Oh yeah, it's beautiful to read and it's written to the person with OCD. So it means that you can share with the client, which is lovely. But what I love about the Obsessive Concerns Checklist, now this is a long questionnaire, so you can give it to your client or you can do it with them in session. But do you know where I've really enjoyed using it is with clients who have a really hard time telling you what their symptoms are. Clients who have lots and lots of mental compulsions or hard to see compulsions or lots of obsessions or who are really ambivalent about treatment or aren't highly motivated or just having a hard time really engaging with you in conversation about it. Oh, you wouldn't understand or I don't know how to describe it or no one else has these thoughts. Yeah, that's right. Like no one would understand. I tend to find that people feel really validated by going through and go, oh my gosh, I cannot believe how many of these I'm checking or wow, like I'm not that strange. It's it's so common. It's on a checklist. That's right. So I like this one because it doesn't read as clinical as some of the others do as well. That's true. It's a really accessible checklist. It really yeah, is. Yeah, which I think is a really great assessment and therapeutic tool. That's a great one. This has been such a meaty episode. <laughs> It was always too much. I know. (laughs) And there's so much more that we can talk about. But if we do, I suppose, a bit of a recap so far before we wrap up. So we've talked about how to approach an assessment, structured versus unstructured methodology, about the importance of listening to your client. You did a beautiful summary on the symptoms of OCD. What are we looking for? What are the core components of OCD and what we're looking for? So we're looking at the presence of obsessions, the presence of compulsions, functional impairment, and significant distress to meet criteria for a DSM diagnosis. We've also talked about using psychometrics, which I think is really important. But I think probably there's a couple more things to add before we wrap up, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but I want to cycle back to the notion of egodystonic because I think we talked about distress associated with thoughts. I think it'd be good to actually talk about it specifically in relation to 
the terminology egodystonic and egocentric. Do you want to take a lead on that one? Let's do it. So this idea, what do we even mean when we're talking about egodystonic and egocentric? It's a very good question. We all experience weird and wonderful thoughts. They take us to funny places, neutral places, scary places, anywhere really. But when we experience thoughts that are inconsistent with our values and beliefs as a person, we call that an egodystonic thought. What that means is basically we're experiencing a thought that is not consistent with our values and beliefs as a person. So if I'm walking down the street and I'm like, oh my God, how cute is that little girl playing with her friend? And then all of a sudden I have a thought about assaulting that little girl. That thought is most definitely inconsistent with my values and beliefs (laughs) as a person. And so when that thought pops in, I'm like, oh God, what the hell is that? Now, doing this job for a very, very long time, I know what that intrusive thought is. I can sit with it. I can keep getting on with my day. And of course, it makes me feel uncomfortable and upset. If I had no idea about what I was experiencing, I'd probably be walking going, what the fuck? Excuse my language. What does that mean about me as a person? That's disgusting. Like, why would I even be thinking this? So you can see the reaction that I'm having to the thought is one of shame, one of disgust, one of guilt, everything, anxiety, fear, all of these things where that reaction is telling me, hey, this is not consistent with who I am as a person. Different to thoughts that are what we call egosyntonic, which are thoughts that are consistent with our values and beliefs as a person. And so all of the time when we're dealing with OCD, and this will help you when you're trying to differentiate between is this OCD or is this better explained by another condition, is this idea of obsessions this person is experiencing, these intrusive thoughts, are they egodystonic? That is a huge, huge thing to consider when we're talking about assessing for OCD. And that's one thing you have to listen for as a clinician to help you determine what is this person's reaction? What is this telling me about their belief system, their values as a person? What's their reaction? What's their experience? And that will tell you if it's egodystonic or not. Actually, all of the time, these thoughts are egodystonic when we're dealing with our clients. And you know what? I think it's important all the time, but I think when we're talking about intrusive thoughts about, oh, are my hands clean? I don't think that they are. They evoke quite the same reaction, not just in the client, but in the clinician. Thinking about ourselves, our transference in the moment, is that when you hear a client talking about how there's germs everywhere, I think is less evocative most of the time than when a client sits in front of you and tells you that they're thinking about, they're having pedophilic intrusive thoughts. Yes, that is such an important point. Yeah, absolutely. Or they're having aggressive intrusive thoughts. And it is essential if you're working or assessing for OCD that you are aware of just how important it is to assess whether something is egodystonic or egosyntonic. Because unfortunately, OCD remains misunderstood and there are awful stories about clients with OCD who are referred off for for forensic assessments or reported to child protection or reported to the police. And they've just had these awful, awful experiences because they've been misdiagnosed. I mean, we know that people with OCD take themselves to the police station having these thoughts. Am I a danger to my community? Lock me away. Assess me, please. Because the thoughts are egodystonic because they're so afraid and so frightened and so distressed by what's going on in their mind. So we as a community, as psychologists, I think we've got a really big responsibility to understand this concept and to hold it in mind when doing an assessment so that you can take the right next steps. Absolutely. 
The other thing that comes to mind when I was listening to you talk was sometimes clients can be so fused with their intrusive thoughts that it's even hard to pick apart if it is ego dystonic or ego syntonic, especially or more so when it comes to clients who engage in behaviors like order and symmetry or contamination, where it's like, well, you should wash your hands after blah, blah, or you should have standards like this, especially now after the pandemic, my goodness. And I guess in those moments, it's about really paying attention and listening and going, how fused is this client with this intrusive thought? Or are we dealing with something else like obsessive compulsive personality disorder? Things that will help you ask these questions to think about differentials, but also to really take a step back and help unpack that with your client as well. And if you're not sure, take it to supervision. Absolutely. And tease it apart and think it through. 100%. All righty. That wraps up our skills episode, our second one for this wonderful show. How much fun it's been deep diving on assessment. Assessment, I think, is fun to talk about because it's so complex, but it's also often the beginning of your journey with a client. And so it's a really rich, rewarding experience when you can really immerse yourself in it. Yeah, it's a part that I really enjoy. Absolutely. And helping people connect with hope doesn't always happen, but it can be a real reward from the assessment process. So, yeah. Absolutely. To help your client feel, make them know, (laughs) help them to feel Mm. like there is something that they can do about what they're experiencing. Wonderful. Thank you for listening, everybody. We will be back next fortnight with another interview for you. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. All one word, that's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and break the rules. <laughs>